everybody. Welcome to the Wasatch Report. I am Suzanne Sherman. Jeff Johnson and Mike Meharry from the 10th Amendment Center are joining me today for Episode 6, Wednesday, May 6th, year 2020. We're going to be discussing the pending uh, meat crisis and how the federal government has been themselves responsible for the shortage that is coming. And you can hear this podcast on Anchor FM and the various uh uh, supporters and uh, I guess the the captures for the podcast on there as well. I think we're up to about seven or eight so far. So that's really good news. Appreciate those of you that are joining us in. We're on Facebook Live. And then once we record this, Jeff Johnson, my good friend and producer and co-host, will do some post-production work and get this all tidied up for a podcast again that you can hear on Anchor FM. We'll also put it up on SoundCloud. You can follow me on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Suzanne Sherman's The Wasatch Report. I have a website, SuzanneCSherman.com. From there, you can see my published articles as well as blogs covering preparedness and federalism. Today, we're going to talk a lot about federalism. doesn't mean what a lot of people think it means. I think people think it's synonymous with the national government. And that being said, that's a perfect opportunity to bring in my guest and very good friend, Mike Meharry from the 10th Amendment Center. You also have a Godarchy podcast and MikeMeharry.com. We'll be talking about your article you just published in there, how Congress bro broke the meat supply chain 50 years ago. Mike, let's do a quick touch up on federalism. I made a comment on Thomas Massey's wall the other day. And boy, howdy, people think that if you say the federal government doesn't have the authority to uh, do or regulate something, that it's just not going to happen at all. And we are going to have absolute chaos and pandemonium. Why don't you explain the difference or what federalism really does mean? Yeah, you know, it's sad because federalism is really the philosophical bedrock of the American political system. Uh, it was <clears throat> radical in its day. Uh, it's the idea that we diffuse power through various governmental entities, very various political entities. It's a decentralized system as opposed to a national system, which basically everybody in America believes in today. You know, America has turned into France. It's one Big country, the states really don't matter. All decisions come from on high, from Washington, D.C. It's extremely centralized. And it is the exact opposite of the system that the founding uh, fathers gave us. Uh, it was a decentralized system. And there are a lot of advantages to a decentralized system, which we're going to talk about today. Uh, you know, one of the main things is that when you have a single government, when you have everything coming from one place, you have a single point of failure. In other words, when that government does something bad, and inevitably a government is going to do something bad, when the central authority does it, it impacts everybody. When you have a decentralized system, you have multiple points of failure. So California may do something really stupid, but it doesn't impact me here in Florida. It doesn't impact you in Utah. It doesn't impact Jeff in Pennsylvania. There are multiple points of failures. Decentralized systems are more robust. And they're, they are more conducive to liberty over the long run. But everybody has gotten into this mindset that we're going to impose liberty from the central authority. And it never works because the central authority doesn't believe in liberty. Uh, so it's, it's, really, it's really sad. And it's unfortunate they, that they call it federalism because people think, oh, federal government. And that's not it at all. It's actually the opposite of that. It's a decentralized system. Oh, I, oh. Really, that's my political foundation is decentralization. I don't like monopoly government. I think monopoly government is dangerous, just like, you know, a grocery monopoly would be dangerous. 
and you know a thing or two about this, you happen to have written a book about the Constitution. And I'm going to just really quickly say that the government we have today was proposed in Virginia. It was rejected outright. I'm sorry, in Philadelphia, it was rejected outright. Madison was told, if you don't knock it off with your Virginia plan, we're going to shut this whole thing down and everybody's going to go home. So what was ratified, what was consented to by the states was the decentralized version of government. Thomas Jefferson had even said that he considered the 10th Amendment to be the foundation of the Constitution. So I've written many articles for you guys at the 10th Amendment Center on that as well. We're going to touch on uh, one of the ones that you wrote as well. Uh, really quickly, let people know about your latest book. We're going to be covering that today and how they can get it. I happen to have a copy of it right here. I don't have uh, a copy yet. <laughs> you, you don't have a copy? I don't. That's, get one. We, have to, we have to remedy that. Anyway, yes. it's called Constitution Owner's Manual. And what I did was <laughs> I went through... I started off and talked about the philosophical foundation of the Constitution, some of this stuff that we just talked about, but more in depth, how we evolved from the British system, which was this living, breathing, central authority government, to the constitutional, decentralized, federalist government that we were supposed to have. And then I go through the various clauses, the supremacy clause, the general welfare clause, the necessary and proper clause, and I explain what those were understood to mean during the ratifying convention. That's where we find the true meaning of the constitutions. What was agreed to by the people who signed it. And we find out that meaning by looking at what people who supported the constitution said. And so uh, that's basically the, the sum of the book. It's like 24, 25 chapters. Uh, it's a, it's a pretty easy read. So I'm told, and I'm very, very <coughs> pleased with how it came out. If people are interested in getting it, you can just go to constitutionownersmanual.com. And uh, there you'll find the links to uh, the um, the Kindle version, the paperback version. You can get signed autographed copies through me. And then uh, we're soon to have an audio version, if I can deal with the Auto Bell's silly cover thing that they're worried about. But anyway, so yeah, constitutionownersmanual.com. Well, you mentioned what is referred to as a few of the elastic clauses uh, the Supremacy Clause, General Welfare, Commerce Clause being another one. And interestingly enough, the other day, I commented on Thomas Massey's Facebook page. He was talking about the Prime Act, which is going to show the countries of origin and how people have a right to know. And this is a way to help solve this meat pr uh, crisis that we're having. And I said, you know, we really don't need this Prime Act if states would just nullify. You've also written a book called Just Say No. It's about nullification, right? Or the power of no. Mm -hmm. And I said, if states would just ignore or essentially nullify the laws that we have in existence, they could do all this. We don't need another federal permission slip. Right. I actually had to turn off, as you're familiar, <laughs> the <laughs> notifications for this. What did I get right away? So predictable. Well, that's fine, Suzanne. But if the meat crosses state lines, boom, there we have the Commerce Clause. I think Dave Benner and I actually did an episode on Wickard versus Filburn. And I remember this in law school. And for those that aren't familiar with this case, that really essentially gave the federal government control over anything insofar as it doesn't even have to cross state lines. This is how insane the stretch was. We had a wheat farmer and he was growing his own wheat. It was never going to leave his property. But as we know, during the New Deal era, the government had to put its stamp and control on everything. And he uh, was told that he could not grow wheat. And he said, but hey, it's never leaving my property. It's for my own use, my own cattle. No, 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 no. But the fact that you're producing wheat affects interstate commerce. 
And we were taught that in law school and mm. we should have been up in arms over this. And this is why I try to refer people to my article uh, by the Abbeville Institute published it. The problem with lawyers and the constitution. Yeah. We are taught by our constitutional law professors that this is acceptable. And that's the problem when you study case law as opposed to what you mentioned earlier, the ratification records and what was actually consented to. I akin this to two people engaged in a transaction of the sale of a home where you purchase a home, two people come ahead, and then sometime like 10 years down the road, somebody else comes along and interprets the contract as to saying, this home was supposed to have a pool <laughs> when the parties never consented to it. So now this guy's got to dig in a pool. And not only do you have to have this pool, everybody gets to use this pool and you get to pay for it. So this is what happens when you have outsiders interpreting a contract after the fact. And that's exactly what the federal judiciary is doing. And, and as, as I've said before, they use the 14th Amendment to justify it. Our good friend Dave Benner wrote a book called The 14th Amendment and the Incorporation Doctrine. You can understand and know more about the Constitution as ratified than any federal judge. If you just read that 40-page book, yep. or if you really want to get into it, uh, Government by Judiciary by Raoul Berger. But Mike, let's talk a little bit now. 50 years ago, Congress came up with, what was it called? They I love the names they come up with this. Um, what was this? The Wholesome, the Wholesome Meat Act. Wholesome Meat Act. Thank God. Why don't you talk about your article? And this is, I have it right here. Congress broke the meat supply chain 50 years ago is the name of the article. Michael Meharry, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-M-A-H-E-R-R-E-Y.com for those that are just listening. And we will put this in our show note, the Wholesome Meat Act of 1967. And one thing that you mentioned here is uh, for people to keep in mind, this 1967 act has been one of the worst laws ever passed. This was a quote that you put in here, but what is more, it was known from the beginning that the act would have the effect it did. I kind of think of the uh, Immigration Act also that happened in that same era. They knew what the effects would be and they did it anyway. So go ahead, let's talk about that act in the article and how that is impacting or causing the meat crisis that we have coming towards uh, us today. Well, let me back up even just a step further before we get into the actual Wholesome Meat Act and talk a little bit about the Commerce Clause because I think that's a key part of this. Um, in the same way that lawyers use case law to justify constitutional things, it's also important to know what the various terms meant at the time of ratification. Mm -hmm. And if you understand commerce, you will understand what they meant was not anything near what we see today. Commerce was the regulation of trade. It was literally the regulation of the movement of goods, the, the, the shipping of goods. Commerce was not intended to include the production of goods or wage law or labor law or food safety laws or any of those things. Those aren't really in the constitutional definition of commerce. So when people say, well, the meat moved across state lines, therefore the federal <laughs> government can dictate how that meat is produced. No, that was not the intention. It was only intended to allow the power to regulate the movement of those products across state lines. And it was very specifically done in order to keep Utah from putting a tariff on products coming over the state border from Colorado. It was to make trade more free and robust. It was not intended to be a regulatory tool of the federal government. But as you've noted, the courts and, and uh, the lawyers and the politicians have gradually expanded the term commerce to mean any economic activity, which is absurd. 
And it basically gives the federal government a blank check to regulate anything and everything. So, of course, if you give the federal government that kind of blank check, if you give government that kind of power, it's going to exercise it. And that brings us to this 1967 Meat Act. Now, of course, it was passed for safety. It's going to make us safe because it's going to regulate the meat production. And people will tell you, oh, meat is gross and it needs to be very carefully regulated to keep us safe, keep the food supply safe. I think so now, about how I butcher my deer in the back of my side by side. <laughs> <laughs> so, so now, you know, cook your meat, right? Anyway, um, so they, they passed this law and, and really what it was, was it's, it's interesting with a lot of these type of federal laws, you know, who supports this stuff, big corporations, big companies, because they know they can bear the cost and the burden of the regulation. Whereas the little guy, the little butcher, the family farmer who wants to butcher a few cows and sell locally, he can't handle the cost of that regulatory burden. And that's what I meant when I said that they knew what the impact of this was going to be. Effectively, what happened was after that act was passed, the small butchers, the small meat processing companies could not afford to handle the regulatory burden. So they went out of business. And we are left now. I have the, the statistic right here in front of me. Uh, at the time that the Wholesome Meat Act was passed, there were over 10,000 meat processing businesses in the United States. As of 2019, there were only 2,766 processing plants in the entire country. So uh, I don't know what the percentage is, but instead of having hundreds and thousands of meat processors, we now have just a few. And it's basically controlled by three corporations. So it has created this consolidation in the business. So fast forward to today when we have supply chain disruptions because of the uh, coronavirus or the government shutdowns. And you shut down a few of these big plants and you take a huge chunk out of the meat production. That's why we have farmers dumping crops and killing animals while we go to the grocery store and we don't see very much meat on the shelves. It's because there's a, there's a, uh, a, a kink in the distribution system at the processing level because we've shut down a few of these big plants and there aren't enough to take up the slack. That's what I meant when I talked about this idea of a single point of failure. We have very few points of failure in the meat processing food chain now. And when a few of those fail, we have shortages of meat. If we had 10,000 meat processing plants, we'd be relatively unaffected by a few of those shutting down. Now, again, this was supposed to be safety, right? But the fact of the matter is it's actually less safe having fewer processing plants because if you have one infected cow in one plant that's producing, you know, a one-tenth of the entire uh, meat of the whole United States, that's a lot of bad meat that gets tainted. Whereas, again, if you have just one uh, bad cow in a small plant, it's only going to affect a, a smaller area of people. And, in fact, we have seen a rapid growth of massive recalls, massive foodborne illnesses nationwide because our food distribution chain is so centralized and so dependent on just a few companies. So when you go to your grocery store and you see a shortage of, of meat, it's not just the coronavirus. It's not just that, you know, uh, some meanie somewhere is, is uh, not processing meat. It's because 50 years ago, actually the year I was born, the federal government decided it needed to control meat processing. And this is what you get with central planning every single time, unforeseen consequences and uh, 
it ends up being worse for us in the long run, even though the government always promises that it's going to be better. You know, as, as a prepper, um, <clears throat> I'm going to get into my take as a prepper after we take this quick break to uh, thank our, our uh, hosts here, our anchor podcast hosts. Thank you. All right, everybody, getting back to what, what you were saying, Mike, was about uh, the consolidation of the food chain thanks to centralized planning and the Wholesome Meat Act from 50 years ago. You know, as a prepper, my take is always redundancy. One is none is a common phrase. And we also talk about, uh, you know, so if something fails that where you say they're controlled by three corporate entities, we are seeing now a kink like you, you described in the food chain supply. And now we're going to have shortages unnecessarily because we could have had thousands more processing plants. And the other thing you mentioned was the consolidation of the food source itself, the cattle, for instance. And if you get some sick cattle and then you have so many, it's interesting that in a time where we demand people socially distance, <laughs> we expect our food source to be uh, consolidated in mass in massive uh, populations for the production or the processing of all this meat. So clearly that's a way that disease gets spreaded uh, or spread around for the English speakers. Um, and what strikes me as odd is it seems that so many smaller businesses have been completely taken out of the loop on this. One of the things we're talking about was smaller businesses who have in, been independent from the banks, for instance. I was watching on the news how these uh, loans, these rescue loans were going to be bailing out small businesses and you can apply for a loan and it can eventually become a grant and all this stuff. And somebody said, well, you know, a lot of family businesses have been started and funded with family assets. They've been, they've been self-funded. And the commentator said, well, these people need to develop relationships with banks. What does that mean? Develop a relationship with a bank for a loan, Mike? Yeah, how many, you know, you think back to that. Here's an interesting thing. This uh, just, just popped into my head. You know, back in the, uh, like the 40s and 50s, there was this extreme federalization of uh, farm loan programs. And that was actually used by unscrupulous people to take thousands of acres of land away from black people because they got them into this cycle of debt and then they couldn't keep their farm. And it was by design. I wrote an article about it. I'll, I'll try to find it and, and maybe put it in the, on the Facebook links if I can find the article. But so this is what happens. You, you get hooked in the bank owns you in effect and then the powers that be have control over you. And they literally use this to steal land from black people. Progressives should be outraged at this. Progressives are the ones that are always wanting federalization and centralization of everything. Well, this is what you get. The people that you claim to care the most about end up getting hosed by the powers that be because they use the system and manipulate the system for their own benefit. You know, earlier in the conversation, excuse me, we were talking about the Karens and the people that are outraged that people might be violating uh, laws, be they federal or local. And my response to that is, okay, would you have turned in the Jews? Would you have reported some uh, slaves that you suspected may have escaped? Oh, look at that family down there. I, I think they might belong to somebody. You are the type of person that would have reported yep. them and turned them in and had them sent back to the plantation. So please do not 
you know, spew your social, your, your, your uh, virtue signaling on me because you want people to stay safe because you were the ones that were, would have reported your Japanese neighbor and cheered them on as they were being dragged out, their, uh, out of their front door to go to the internment camps. So I really have little patience for these people when they say, well, they need to follow the law. Look right. what the laws have done for us so far. Um, I want to share <clears throat> because this 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 uh, really fits in, and I'm trying to incorporate some uh, listener feedback and commentary as well. Andrew's not listening live, but this really is a uh, relevant to our discussion today. And he says, if you think the federal government should force states to open more quickly, and this will tie into our discussion with AG Barr, you're part of the problem. Yes, you are. If you are angry at the state for destroying business dreams, families, and lives attack the source of your problem, your state government or your county your county government. Uh, we've got the Summit County Health Department, absolute train wreck. Do this through nullification. Open your business, walk your streets, exercise, he says, responsibly. I don't know what responsibly means. I do what I'm going to do. Did you see my pictures from Walmart? Yeah, you saw those. Yes. Exercise your natural rights of worship and assembly responsibly. Be the visible resistance responsibly. If you want to go the legal route, it's a matter of state jurisdiction. Impeach your governor, sue your state. I think you have to recall your governor. Uh, initiate legislation which supports your liberty, but do so at the state level. So if you're looking to D.C. for help, and I think that's the main point of this, is you don't get it. And that really ties into our discussion of federalism today. Yeah. Again, you have that, that, <clears throat> that single point of failure. So again, you know, it, it is interesting to look at the way various states have handled the uh, the pandemic. And most states have not done a very good job, but some states have been better than others. I think Florida has definitely been better than Kentucky, and I've kind of watched both. Uh, you know, the governor of South Dakota, uh, I would say she's actually been pretty good. So when you have centralized authority, you get what you get. And it's almost always bad. You know, I always tell people they get all excited because the federal courts are going to take this case and we're going to, yeah. we're going to, we're going to get religious liberty because <clears throat> the state of Kentucky is getting sued in federal court. And you know, what's going to happen. The federal courts are going to say, Oh yeah, Kentucky was perfectly justified in doing that. And then that means every state is perfectly justified in doing that. And that's why it's important to use as, as Andrew said, your, your state mechanisms. People say, well, are you telling me that it's okay for the state to, to trample on your rights? Well, no, I'm not saying that at all. Any more than you're saying because you want the federal government to do something that you're okay with the federal government trampling on your rights. I mean, you know, if it's, it's a matter of what are you going to call the top? I say yeah. call your state the top and leave the feds out of it. Uh, people want to make the feds the top. Well, why not make the UN the top? You know? I mean, who's going to control yeah, exactly. the federal government? If it's, it's the top, don't we need something to control the federal government? We need the UN. Nobody wants the UN controlling the United States. And the same people that are screaming that the federal government should control Florida are the same ones that are, oh, my God, get us out of the UN because we're going to have one world government. There's, there's a disconnect in thinking there. Well, Mike, you know, <clears throat> what's wrong with central planning? Don't, don't, doesn't the federal government have resources to get the absolute best people you know, better than better than we can get at the states. And I, I always say, you know, from where do you get these federal workers? I mean, do they come from another colony where they're fed some sort of royal jelly, where they're <laughs> groomed from from their beginnings to to have the qualifications to rule over us? 
I think we're seeing that that's really not the case because these people at the top level are, 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 have absolutely slowed down the ability to treat patients. I mean, it's just been, they're, they're running back. Okay. Masks. Yes or no. Social distancing. Yes or no. You know, what's really going to be effect. Now we're seeing a woman in Texas, a salon owner locked up for seven days. And to me, this was like, Oh, who was the gal? Was it in, was it in Kentucky that went to jail because she didn't uh, sign the marriage license, the marriage certificates. She refused to sign marriage certificates. Oh yeah. The, uh, the uh, clerk in, uh, can't remember what county it was, but yeah, that was in, uh, that was in Kentucky. And you know, when, when we're seeing people locked up for instances like this, I want to see bodies standing between that person and either local or federal law enforcement, preventing them from being arrested. You know, when we, when uh, Dan Fisher was running for governor of Oklahoma, I had said, if he's, if he is um, elected and they, if Oklahoma decides to shut down, the abortion facilities. Again, I typically stay out of that argument, but for purposes of federalism and nullification, if they decide they want to shut that down, I was, I said, I'm going to go out there and I will be one of the people in the human chain to stop the Freds from going in and cutting those chains that are on the doors. That's the, that's within the right of the people of Oklahoma to decide. Other than that, I don't really get into that article or that argument. You had a great discussion with that on your, on your uh, podcast before. But, you know, let's talk about now federalism and how the federal overlords are going to stop the states from going too far. We've seen egregious examples of federal overreach. I don't understand how anybody that knows anything about history can be okay with granting the feds more power or the authority to overrule the states. Like you said, we have a pressure release valve. We have an, we have you know, where some states can make some bad judgments. But on the other hand, we can have some good judgments as well to follow. We have no safe haven if everything's going to be top down. So let's talk about Attorney General Barr. And also you had a, a post on from the 10th Amendment Center, big government is the virus. I absolutely agree with that. And I, I wrote an article for you guys too about um, Attorney General Barr wanting to reinstate the federal death penalty for a multitude of crimes over which the feds never had jurisdiction to begin with. As we know, the constitution has ratified, delegated them the authority to, to prosecute, punish three crimes, piracy on the high seas, treason, and counterfeiting. So let's talk about attorney general Barr. Everybody's cheering. This guy's going to protect the states from overreach. And I thought you've got to be kidding me. Uh, let's have you talk about this article a little bit. Uh, we're going to get to it right after this quick break. All right, everybody, welcome back. And we're going to pick up right here. Mike Meharry from the 10th Amendment Center wrote an article called You're Trusting This Guy to Protect Your Liberty. The article is about Attorney General, United States Attorney General William Barr. Go ahead, Mike. This guy is awful. Like he's yes. one of the lizard people. I, I feel like if you pull his face off, there's a lizard underneath there. Uh, and these, this is the guy that all of a sudden he's our savior. He's going to crack down on these states that are not opening up fast enough and he's going to protect our constitutional rights so i'm told and you know all while saying he doesn't understand the constitution at all <laughs> right here here's the thing and this is if if nobody remembers anything or if you don't remember anything else that is said this entire podcast remember this if you give william barr or any federal official the power to tell states to open up. 
you are by default also admitting that they have the power to tell them to close down. You can't have one without the other. And this person that you're that you're cheerleading because he's going to protect your rights has a horrible track record when it comes to actually protecting people's rights. And a lot of people I don't think realize that uh, Barr was attorney general before. He was attorney general under G.W. Bush, so Bush number one. And he Talk was, about draining the swamp. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> this guy was basically the godfather of the NSA Master Surveillance Program. He created a mini version of the mass telephone surveillance program for the DEA back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. I think it was early 90s. I think he was uh, 91 to 93, if I remember correctly. And he created this program for the DEA to monitor everybody's phone calls. It was basically they said that they had the right to intercept any phone call that left the country to another country where there might be drug lords. And it ended up being a list of like 100 countries, so like a third of the world. And so this was the model that was used after 9-11 to create the Patriot Act and the NSA program that Snowden later revealed that was basically dragnet surveilling everybody's telephone calls. William Barr, your protector of liberty, was the guy that created this. So and you know, that's just one that's just one of the horrible, awful things that this guy has done. Yeah, well, and we'll get into those in a minute. Uh, we have a, a comment from Diana. I thought Trump was leaving it to the states to decide. And that's what's funny is we're looking at the president to decide what the states can do. <laughs> And, and, you know, that's and people will cheer that on and go, well, that's great that Trump's saying that it's not great because it's none of his damn business. Right. So the point of the matter is it's up for the states to decide. And conversely, he can say, I'm going to tell the states when they can open. Or you know what? As you alluded to, I'm going to decide the states are going to be shut down nationally. Pardon my French across this continental landmass. Oh, I don't know. Maybe till July 6th, unless some of you clowns think you might want to celebrate <laughs> Our freedom. So, yeah. and, and what it is, is I'm leaving it to the states as long as the states do it the way I want done. Which is what, and, which and is where Barr comes be, in. And let's be honest, this has turned into politics as most things do. And this is all about Democratic governors trying to make the president look bad and the president trying to force their hand. It's more left right politics and it's stupid. You know who gets, gets hosed whenever that happens? Us. So I have no patience for all of this, uh, this political grandstanding at the, at the national level, especially when you're trusting this guy, Barr, to, you know, it's more important that Barr owns the libs than it is that we maintain our constitutional system and the integrity of, of the Constitution and the decentralized <laughs> system of government that creates at least some space for liberty. And you nailed that right there. It's more important to own the libs than to protect our liberties. You know, really cutting off our nose to, to spite our face. And uh, Diane saying, wow, I didn't know that about Barr. Folks, this is why you need to listen to us. Turn off Fox News. They're going to glorify this guy. Stop listening to the mainstream media. Stop listening to the regular news stations because you're not going to get the truth here. The other thing about Barr also, when you when you want to confer this kind of power to the federal government because it will give you more liberty. What is the example that comes to my mind first? National reciprocity. People are thinking, well, this is a great idea. You know, Second Amendment, this is fantastic. <laughs> what happens when the very government that forces the states to accept across the board 
concealed carry permits from any other state, even if they don't want to, this same government can say, because of this virus or because of pick your calamity, we are for your safety going to revoke concealed carry permits nationwide. Pardon my French, but there it is, the N-word, the word that should never be discussed in proper political uh, discussions of freedom, nationalism here. And there's a difference. In, in my article, Church of National Government, I quote George Orwell. He has a brilliant distinction between nationalism and patriotism. And I really appreciate the comments coming in here. Let's discuss. Now, I know and I, this is this is one of the pushbacks I get all the time when I mention Ruby Ridge. Oh, he wasn't the attorney general there, but he came out on record supporting the FBI snipers. He said if the FBI snipers were uh, in any way held accountable for this, that their effectiveness in law enforcement would somehow be adversely affected. To that, I say, please adversely affect it. Let's talk about what you mentioned here in Ruby Ridge. Yeah. First off, let's kind of give people a little background. Ruby Ridge uh, was an incident. It was in the uh, early 90s. It was actually right before the Waco incident. It kind of <coughs> set up the whole Waco. Fiasco. It was the opening act. Yeah. Uh, but long and short of it, there was this guy, Randy Weaver, and Randy Weaver was a white supremacist and he was anti-government. And he basically got railroaded into a weapons charge. And if you have any knowledge of the way the FBI and the federal government works. They use informants and basically entrap people. Now, I'm not saying Randy Weaver was a good dude. I'm sure he was a dirtbag. Nevertheless, the, the, the feds decided that they were going to go get this guy. And long story short, an FBI sniper ended up shooting his wife while she was holding her baby. It was a horrible, even the even the the government investigation of this admitted that this was a horrible uh, misuse of the rules of engagement. It was horribly, horribly mishandled. William Barr, your attorney general, spent years defending the sniper and creating the legal arguments <laughs> that ultimately got this dude off who murdered a woman while she was holding her baby. To keep Let us safe from for a second. to keep to keep us safe because a shotgun was what was it? I think a quarter inch um, cut a quarter inch too short. Yeah, too short due to federal regulations. Remember now, all of you constitutionalists who love to wave around the you know around the the Second Amendment rights banner. According to the Second Amendment, which is an absolute restriction about the general government, Ruby Ridge never should have happened. You also mentioned confidential informants, and I use the story out here. You know, when I talk about people who do these open rebellions and protesting, I had a friend out here, uh, his name's Bill Keebler, and he was the head of security at Bundy Ranch. I knew him personally. I'd been to some of his events. <clears throat> and after the Bundy Ranch incident, he was on his way up to assist uh, Lavoie Finnicum. And he unfortunately didn't get there in time. But when he came back, we had a conversation on the phone. He was a changed man. He was terrified. He said, they're getting me next. And within a few weeks, I read that he had been arrested, accused of attempting to set off a pipe bomb in outside a BLM building in Salt Lake City, who was his co-conspirator, a confidential informant, FBI. After the kangaroo court in Nevada for the Bundy trial, he was released because he pled guilty. They said, you have 10 minutes to decide if you uh, don't plead, you're going to be shuffled away to a federal prison until we can, uh, federal custody, until we can get you tried. His medical condition had deteriorated so badly, he was now uh, confined to a wheelchair. They said, if you confess and plead, uh, then we will let you go. Things will, or things will go very well for you. He had 10 minutes to decide 
uh, the rest of his life. So he took a plea and was released. Now, if a person was so dangerous, they're willing to set off a bomb in an urban area like Salt Lake City. Why in the world would they release him? Also remember uh, a while back, this was like maybe 25 years ago, taking over national, pardon my French headlines, was a Christian militia group, I think in Michigan, that was out to have bombs set off at police officers, funerals. Well, this was all, this all came about from, again, FBI confidential informants. All the charges were dismissed. You never heard about that in the, in the headlines at all. Rick wants to know what was his name. That was Bill Keebler as well. And then we had all those kids dying in Waco. We hear about that. And, you know, of course, the news was cheering that on and the AG bar, all these people were behind it. So, um, Jeff, did you have any comments on this? You've been pretty quiet. It's hard to get a word in between the two of us. No, no, just keep going. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll let you know if I want to jump in. Uh, so, you know, the other thing, too, with Barr and, and the, the other problem with relying on the federal government to solve all these problems. I remember when Neil Gorsuch did his acceptance speech and he said, or his acceptance speech for his nomination, and he stood up there and said, it is the job of the Supreme Court to defend liberties throughout the nation. Thoughts on that, Mike? <laughs> it's like people can't people can't hear your eye roll, so we need to express it verbally. Uh, let me let me give you a couple of other real quick tidbits on Barr, just in case people aren't yeah. convinced. Uh, he's also a huge supporter of asset forfeiture, uh, which is basically taking property from people who weren't even necessarily charged with a crime. Uh, so you know, a horrible plague on our judicial system, and big supporter of that. Uh, a, a former drug warrior. And then finally, he's also in favor of um, requiring cell phone companies and, and tech companies to create backdoor access for the federal government to get into your phone. So this is not a person who respects constitutional limits. This is not a person who respects the Fourth Amendment. This is not a person who respects the Second Amendment. This is not a person that respects the Fifth Amendment. And to say that he's going to protect your constitutional rights when you see what his view of constitutional rights really is, is a fool's errand. Uh, as far as Gorsuch, like what? Yeah, right. The Supreme Court's job is basically to rubber stamp what the government wants to do. Let's be honest. You can go yeah. back and, and, and you can look at the number of times that the Supreme Court in all of American history has actually declared a law unconstitutional. I can't remember the exact number, but it's in the 200s somewhere. Of all of the laws that have been passed in the history of the United States, the Supreme Court has only found a handful unconstitutional over the course of history. The federal government is not protecting your rights. The federal government is, or the, the Supreme Court is protecting government power. So, you know, they can sit there and, and talk about lofty platitudes and, and how they, it's, it's BS and nobody should believe it. Go that ahead, makes Jeff. Me angry. Yeah, same here. <laughs> I'll cheer you up. Go yeah. ahead, Jeff. Yeah, well, the whole the whole notion of going to the government to get relief from the government is a fool's errand. So, yeah, so let's okay, so now they're arresting people for opening their shop. Let's go to government to get relief for government for doing this. Well, uh, as somebody somebody does, does anyone the out other... there see the absolute idiocracy in this whole thing? 
somebody mentioned, shouldn't people file, uh, if your businesses have been destroyed, shouldn't you file, I think, what is it, Title 18, 1983, that was a civil rights, some civil rights act and file under that. And I said, I have a real hard problem going to an unconstitutional federal law to defend liberties at the state level. But I mean, the, the bottom line is, both state, municipal, county, I shouldn't say both, I should just say across the board here, and federal government are all restricting our rights unnecessarily and unlawfully. And they're doing it under the guise of, well, it's an emergency and we have to save lives. Like I said, I had a conversation with my county and I honestly expected somebody to show up because the conversation didn't end well. Just the sheer arrogance that they know how to tell us. They know so much more than us, the unwashed masses, on how to rule our lives that we can't make these decisions for ourselves. So you had also written an article uh, about the police state that's going to be uh, developing. Yeah. Suzanne, can I, can I just, go ahead. Can I make a com quick yeah. comment? I would like to have somebody that's listening, show me in your state constitution where there is a, an emergency exception clause for all the, for your bill of rights in your state constitution. So please someone send that to me because I, I, I would really like to see it. And for that matter, please show and cite the uh, exception clause in the U.S. Constitution for the whole notion that a an emergency can set aside the Bill of Rights on the U.S. Constitution. Please, somebody cite that for me. Anyway, you know what? You know what's Bueller, interesting too. Bueller. Bueller. The interesting thing, too, is a lot of these um, <clears throat> restrictions are really coming from the unelected bureaucrats in the local mm -hmm. health departments. Yes, we have our governors issuing some decrees. You know, Gary Herbert did not shut down the states, but three county governments, uh, three, I think it was Utah, Davis and Summit County. I could be uh, I think that's the ones had the shutdown Summit County. I listened to one of their they had a webinar and interestingly enough, they shut off all chat. So we had to sit there and listen to their circle jerk of praising themselves <laughs> Uh, how what a wonderful job they were doing, but absolutely no input from the unwashed masses whose lives have been destroyed by their policies. And here's what's scary. And this ties into your police state article. One of these clowns asks the other, hey, what do you think about Google and Apple getting together to track contacts? you know, and uh, virus contracts and see how people are, are are spreading this disease. And I'm waiting for the guy to say, you know, as my fantasy, you know, I kind of think that's an infringement of prom privacy. But no, it was, oh, gee, oh, I think that's a great idea. I think the technology is really kind of neat. I'm sitting there dying because you can't even contribute to the conversation with an opposing point of view. What this is, is just a propaganda you know, agenda here where you don't, your comments are not welcome. They are not needed, but you by golly better adhere to their decree. It's very, and this is, this is really why I didn't even feel like doing a show last week. I was so disheartened. We talk about nullification. We talk about centralization, uh, decentralization away from DC, but our biggest problem is that this mindset seems to be hardwired into the overwhelming percentage of the population that is perfectly okay with this. And those of us that are trying to stand up and say, this isn't right, you're going to regret this later. You are going to have a hangover from this. 
you know, you're shooting all this tequila at the bar. Seems like a good, a good idea at the time. And then the next morning, you go, oh my God, well, this is what's going to happen when this virus eventually, you know, gets out of the news cycle. We're going to be living with the consequences, much like the Patriot Act. And this mm -hmm. is going to be the Patriot Act on steroids because a virus is unseen, never goes away. We're going to take a quick break to thank Roxanne for their musical contribution to this show. Music for this program has been brought to you by Roxanne, courtesy of Rat Pack Records. Radio Silence is the album and is available on Amazon, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, RatPackRecordsAmerica.com, and RoxanneBand.com. All right, everybody, thanks for uh, hanging out there with us. And we're just talking about what's going to happen when this virus uh, scamdemic uh, loses our head, gets out of the, the main focus in the news cycle here. We're going to be living with a police state unlike we've ever experienced before under the Patriot Act. We are talking about personal contacts being tracked. Whether or not, even if you don't have that app on your phone, we're talking about um, temperatures being taken. I've seen videos where they have these, um, these, uh, I guess, a prototypes of these a kiosk you can go up to and have your vitals taken in public. Do you really want your temperature monitored? Do you really want your respiration rates monitored? Because there might be uh, a risk to somebody from a disease that is, what is it, 0.0015% mortality rate? We are throwing it all away. I am absolutely despondent over how easily people have capitulated, gone belly up because they're afraid. Clearly, Mike, we just want grandmas to die. <laughs> you know, and, and so the argument is, well, this is necessary. You may not like it, but this is necessary. I've got a great quote for you. This is William Pitt. Necessity is the plea for every infringement of human freedom. It is the argument of tyrants. It is the creed of slaves. Is that not the best, most apropos quote for these times? It is the argument of tyrants. It is the creed of slaves. And here's the thing that people need to understand. Like you said, we're going to come, a day is going to come when, uh, you know, this is going to be out of the headlines. It'll, <laughs> it'll either fade into oblivion or they'll come up with some kind of treatment. Who knows what, what that'll be. But when that happens, all of the police state stuff that we're seeing today is still going to be around. It goes back to uh, the brilliant Bob Higgs and his book Crisis in Leviathan <clears throat> and the whole idea of the ratchet effect. Every time there's a crisis, the government ups its power. It ups its control over us. And it never goes back down to what it was before the emergency. It may go back down a little bit, but we're still going to have the legacy of this for years to come. If nothing else, Governors and, and presidents in the future know that if they can create an emergency, they can basically lock us all in our houses uh, for weeks and weeks on end. That's what's really <clears throat> concerning about this is that the government that we're getting is never going to go away. The government solutions will be with us forever. And you mentioned 9-11. That's exactly what happened. We are still living with the legacy of 9-11. We're still taking our shoes off at the airport because one dude at some point thought he might be able to make a shoe bomb. 
right. 20 years later, we're taking our feet, you know, we're standing in our socks at the airport. We still have the Patriot Act. We still have the NSA spying on everybody in the world. We still have all of these big government things for, you know, basically a once in a lifetime uh, event that they couldn't prevent. And what we're doing now won't prevent the next big event. And then we'll end up with even more government. It's just this horrible endless cycle that ends up with an erosion of our freedoms, a destruction of our system of government, a centralization of power, and, and ultimately us being slaves and begging for the, the master not to whip us so hard. And for those of you thinking that the Supreme Court is going to fix this mess with regards to our, our privacy, our cybersecurity, um, I wrote an article called Butchering the Tenth Amendment. And I discuss uh, Trump appointee and now SCOTUS Justice uh, Brett Kavanaugh mm-hmm. and his, you know, his take on this is on the third party doctrine is anything electronically transmitted because it goes through third party ISPs and phone companies, that sort of thing is not protected by the Fourth Amendment. That's so like how do you mail. think it's like saying your mail's what? not protected because it goes to the post office? Yeah, it's like persons, papers and effects that no longer is in effect anymore. We don't care. And these are the people that uh, are going to defend our liberties and and uphold the the Constitution. Absolutely not. As we wrap up the show, uh, you also work for Shift Gold. Let's talk a little bit about the long term economic impact of how the governments and I'm I'm saying governments across the board, local all the way up are handling this. What are we looking at? I've seen, we know what's been happening in the stock market. We're looking at food supply chains, massive borrowing. Uh, what was it, the first round of the uh, recovery package? $2 trillion. And uh, how are we going to pay this off? Raise taxes? If we raise enough taxes, can this be paid off? No. So here's the wasn't borrowing. It, wasn't it more like $6 well, I trillion? think we're going to get there, yeah. Yeah. So here's, here's the borrowing, the actual borrowing. So you, you get the spending bills. And now yesterday, the Treasury Department uh, announced its projections for borrowing. This is just for the second quarter of this year. So it's actually the third quarter of the fiscal year. $2.9 trillion is the amount of money that the Treasury says it's going to borrow in this quarter. That's basically three months. That is the entire budget deficit that was originally projected borrowed in just three months. It projects another 600 plus billion dollars in the last quarter of the fiscal year, bringing the total money borrowed in fiscal 2020 to four point five trillion dollars. Oh, how conservatives squealed when Obama (laughs) broke the debt ceiling, (laughs) right? Now, you know, there there are so many ramifications of this, and, and it's really not the forum to get into all of the nitty-gritty details, but let's just let's just make two important points. For the and the first important point is that borrowed money has to be paid back. That's that's a no-brainer, right? There are only two ways to pay back government borrowing. One is increasing taxes. And two is inflating the money supply so that you can inflate the debt away. You can pay the past debt with inflated future dollars. I think we should expect both of those things. Anybody who thinks that we're not going to have tax increases down the road for this is out of their ever-loving mind. Don't think that, oh, we can reelect Trump and Trump will keep us from raising taxes. Trump cannot suspend economic reality. There are going to be tax increases in the future because this level of debt is simply not sustainable. 
But I think the bigger thing that they'll turn to is inflating the money supply because that's invisible and it, it's more politically palatable. So that's the go-to. And we're already seeing it. The, uh, the Federal Reserve has created trillions of dollars already out of thin air. Basically what they're doing, the Federal Reserve buys U.S. debt. It buys treasuries from the general market. When it does that, <clears throat> it creates money out of thin air. It doesn't have to have money in a vault somewhere. It just writes a check, and that money, poof, it exists. Can, can we do that? Can we? Can can you and I do that? Can we create no, money called, out of thin air? That called, it's called counterfeiting. You'll go to prison. Oh, I haven't gotten my MAGA money yet. I think didn't some was it Cynthia? Somebody said their dead grandma got their MAGA money. I haven't gotten mine yet. I have not gotten mine either. But this is a tremendous amount of money. This is the root of inflation. I don't see how we can move forward without extreme price inflation in the future. I could be wrong, but economic odds tell us that we're going to have our purchasing power diminished because of all of this borrowing. So the point I'm making is that there are consequences to the borrowing. It's not just, oh, we're going to stimulate the economy and everything will be fine. The second important fact to understand about debt is that it retards economic growth. There's this myth in Republican circles that you can grow yourself out of the debt. They've been telling us that for years. We're going to cut taxes and grow the economy and we'll lower the debt that way. It never works because debt retards economic growth. When the debt to GDP ratio gets above 90%, economic growth tends to slow down by about 30%. We are, we're at 106 debt to GDP ratio, 106%. We were there before the coronavirus pandemic. God only knows what it's going to be here in a few months. We are going to see the economic slowdown that has been caused by government shutting things down, exacerbated by all of the debt. So the bottom line is the cure that we're getting is worse than the virus itself. We're going to see long-term economic pain from this and people need to be prepared for it. And I, you know, I hate to be the the doom and gloomer, but it's just the reality. There's this myth that we're going to snap our fingers and the government's going to reopen everything and everything's going to return to normal economically. That's not going to happen. You don't instantly put uh, you know, 30 million people back to work. All of these companies and businesses that have been shut down, many of them are not going to reopen. Many of them will mm -hmm. reopen, but they're going to be saddled by debt like we talked about earlier. They're beholden to the banks. They're not going to be able to make those debt payments. They're going to go under. We're going to see long-term economic slowdown. We would see that even with even if the economy had been really healthy before coronavirus, and it wasn't. We were already in trouble. It was already a big, fat, ugly bubble waiting to pop. The bubbles pop, and we're going to go down a very dark and difficult road in the next, I'd say, several years. And uh, if you want to learn more about all this stuff, I write about it every day over at shiftgold.com slash news. Uh, Yes, it is a gold site. Yes, we're trying to sell gold. But the writing and the analysis is based on strong economic uh, analysis. It's not, you know, it's not just a marketing pitch. It's what I actually believe. That's why I do what I do over there. So, No, you do a great out. job over there. One of the questions, too, and we're going to wrap up the show, is there any real comparison between the Weimar Republic and the present-day U.S.? Do you see us going that direction, Mike? Well, you know, financial markets are different than they were then. And, you know, there's... <clears throat> For, to me, I, I don't like predicting or, or making comparisons because there are so many dynamics in the economy. Yeah. And, you know, all things being equal, you should have seen price inflation 
after the 2008 crisis. There were a number of things that happened that kept price inflation relatively intact. Now, that's not to say there wasn't. I think we all recognize that over the last decade, our purchasing power has dropped. Our money is worth less. Prices are higher. But in general, we didn't see the kind of hyperinflation you might expect from the quantitative easing and money printing we saw after 2008. And there's a lot of technical reasons for that. A lot of that money ended up going into asset bubbles, into the stock market, into housing. Uh, I think there are reasons technically why that won't happen again and why we will likely see price inflation. But it's difficult to predict what's going to happen in the economy because there are so many factors at play, so many different things, uh, uh, variables to look at. But I think Again, all things being equal, looking at just economic realities, we're, we are five times above the stimulus that was brought into 2008 for that whole crisis. This amount of money in the system has to have impacts and negative impacts. And I think all things being equal, we will see extreme price inflation. We may not see Weimar Republic hyperinflation, but we could. It's possible. But I mean, I can't predict. Well, that. and this is why Jeff and I are going to do a show this week on preparing for yes. what we see as some an economic fallout on this. And uh, as Jeff says, most of the printed money goes into buying stocks. Mm -hmm. uh, OK, so, Mike, we can follow you. MichaelMeharry.com. You also write for the Tenth Amendment Center. Shiftgold. Is it Shiftgold.com also? Yeah, shiftgold.com slash news is the blog where all the articles are. And your Godarchy podcast. Great stuff there. We need to do another preparedness podcast. That was great fun. Yeah, we do. We need to we need to do a little follow-up stuff and talk about the ethics. and. Uh, yeah, great uh, stuff there. That's something we need to cover as well. So, all right, everybody. I want to thank you for joining us today. This has been the Wasatch Report. I'm Suzanne Sherman. And on behalf of Jeff Johnson, Michael Meharry, and myself, I want to thank you for joining us today. God bless you.